do, we are going to back up a little bit to get our full context of the events that we are encompassing. Uh, we will pick up where we left off last week in verse 34 or 54, sorry, 54. We will actually go all the way through the end of the chapter today. You might say, man, you took like three weeks on two verses. And now you're going to try to do 20 some verses in one. That's how narratives work. Sometimes you've spent a lot of time and sometimes you can go through quite a bit. Luke chapter 22, I'll be reading out of the New King James Version. Beginning verse 47 is where we'll pick up. Verse 47 through the end of the chapter. God's Word says, And while He was still speaking, and the one we're talking about here is Jesus Christ, speaking to His disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. While He was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and He who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss Him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, Another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy! Who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. 
Well, we begin, actually we're continuing, I should say, our study in the passion of Jesus Christ. We have been looking through Luke and we have been anticipating this for some time. It really began last week in the Garden of Gethsemane when we saw the beginning of the rejection, the separation that Jesus was to experience. Before we are done with this, he will be rejected by pretty much all men. Um, he will have to experience the rejection even of his heavenly Father as he turns his back on him. And he will say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's already begun to sense that. Uh, we saw that in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane um, that there's a, there's a, a disharmony between him and the Father that there are two wills going on, and the, the Son expresses that, you know, if there's any way for what's about to happen to not happen, please let it pass. Let, let this not occur, but not my will. That's what I would want. I would want that, that there's some way out of what's coming. I would like that way out now. Does that mean there was a way out? No, in fact, it speaks to the very opposite, that there was no other way. If there was any other way to deliver men from their sin, do you think the Father would have responded to the Son right there and said, okay, we'll find another way? But there was no other way. Christ knew this in His intellect, in His mind, in His knowledge, but yet in His, in his life, he, in His flesh, He recognized the great suffering that was going to occur, not just dying on a cross, many men have died on a cross, but of the separation that was going to occur between Him and the Father that was already, really, as we said, initiated here, where we have a disharmony to a degree of the Son, what He wanted from the Father and what He wanted. Ultimately, we look at Christ's statement here, and this is a statement that everyone who wants to come to God must say, and that is, not my will, but yours be done. It is a statement of complete surrender to another. And fundamentally, when we come to God seeking salvation, it is not on your terms that it is ever going to occur. It will always be on God's terms. And therefore, it is requisite of us to surrender our will to His will. Unless you think that that is a hideous thing to do, because we're Americans, we're very independent, and we really value strong will and, and self-reliance. Um, unless you think that that's a horrific thing to do, to surrender one's will to another. We're not talking about surrendering your will to some ogre or some... Uh, uh, Fanatic. We are talking in terms of uh, earthly men that we have experienced that get that kind of a following. But we are talking about a God whose will is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. A God whose will is that all those who will trust in His Son will receive eternity in His presence, not as slaves there, but as His very own adopted children there. A God whose will is that should you trust in Christ as your Savior, if you would do it His way, 
would grant you all the promises recorded in this book. Grant you access, grant you His Spirit, grant you prayer access, grant you uh, blessing upon peace that passes understanding, grant you a love that we that again goes beyond human grasp because it has divine origin. And so this is the will that we are calling men to surrender to. It is a benevolent will. That is, it is seeking our best. Benevolence is a word that we've really lost track of in our society and it's shameful that that's occurred. We have a benevolent God. He is loving and desiring for the good of those that He has created, of all creation. We look around and we say, well, how can these evil things and bad things happen? It is not because God willed that, but because man willed that. And what was going on in the garden goes on today. On the garden it was done without sin because even in his statement of saying, here is my desire, he was already in the midst of that prayer having surrendered his life to the Father's will. The communication of a variant will is not rebellion. But it is when we follow a variant will to God that it becomes rebellion. And this man is done and does every day. We follow our will instead of surrendering it to God's. Fundamentally, that is what salvation is, is for us to surrender our will and its willfulness, its sin, to God and His way. Your way needs to become my way. That's what it means to have Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so Jesus Christ comes in and and already beginning to suffer this disharmony, already recognizing the great spiritual injury that he will have to endure. Yes, there's physical injury, and there are those that want to... uh, dwell on that. And this is not the concern of Christ. It is not the physical pain that He must endure, but rather the spiritual suffering. The Old Testament describes that He was rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That grief is not about physical injury. And that whole idea begins with the rejected of men. And we're going to see that played out today in our passage. This full rejection. We're going to find it by His disciples. We're going to find it by the religious leaders of His own people. Next week we're going to see it. um, uh, In fact, if anyone's the least rejecting, if you will, it's the pagan Romans that seem to be the most reasonable and yet they ultimately also reject Him. We're going to find Him on the cross utterly rejected of men. And ultimately then of the Father as He becomes sin for us. And the Father is going to forsake Him, even if it's just for this brief season on the cross. And so the rejection is what we want to begin looking at here this morning. Not a happy topic, but an instructive one. And I pray that you will view it with sober minds. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do pray that as we look in Your Word now, that You might guide by Your Spirit, We commit ourselves to You. We pray You might have liberty to work in our minds and our hearts and our lives. Lord, guard this time from error, from the opinions of men, from the philosophies of man. That it might be truly Your Word 
that we might receive it as such, as such with discernment, willing to surrender ourselves to your truth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, verse 47 we have Jesus Christ has already been dealing with the letdown, if you will, of the disciples who are sleeping when they should have been watching and praying. And uh, they have let him down to some degree. Of course, one of his disciples, Judas, has come. We studied Judas several weeks ago. We're not going to dwell there, but we find one of his twelve becomes the betrayer. The instrument that is used to bring him under the authority or under the... the uh, power, if you will, of his enemies that have really sought to destroy him for some time now, not only in Jerusalem, but out in the outlying areas where he ministered, we have found the opposition among the religious leaders of that day. Uh, I just want to share something here, this is a little parenthetical, it still happens today, that among the rejection of Christ, do not think that that never occurs among the clergy. In fact, I would contend that they are some of the worst because they have access to God's truth. They have, hopefully, a great a training in this book, and yet they choose to lead people in the rejection of what this, truth, of what this book teaches. So when we talk about being guarded... It is not just uh, against our own selves, but those influences around us. And we might think, well, in churches today, that's the place where the gospel is safe, when in fact, maybe, that may be the very most dangerous place in our society today for the gospels in some of our churches. If we are doing injury to it, we are leading many astray. Here we find that it is the religious leaders of the day that are the greatest enemies of the work of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees, the chief priests, the Sadducees, the, the teachers, the, the, the lawyers, and we think of lawyers as being a political or legal entity. Um, in that day, they were a religious entity because the, lawyer, the law that they were lawyering was the Old Testament law. Ten Commandments kind of thing. Wouldn't that be radical if we had those kind of lawyers in our system today? But the law they were lawyering was God's law. So, we have them coming. Judas is joined their side. He went to them. They didn't find him out. He found them out and was willing to betray his Lord, thinking that he could facilitate the kingdom of God, force Jesus' hand to show his power and destroy his enemies once for all. I still contend that is one of his primary motives. Not all of them, but one of them. course we find the immediate response that we've talked about with Peter wanting to defend his Lord grabbing a sword because he misunderstood Christ's earlier words that we studied several weeks ago and doing injury to one of the high priest servants who was there and Christ makes it very evident that was not his intended meaning of what it meant to carry a sword not a physical sword but rather the sword of the spirit the word of God and so he allows himself to be taken captive. Could Jesus have walked away? Yes. He had done it before. On numerous occasions, they wanted to take him. And he simply walked through them and away. Could he have done it then? Or now? Yes. 
Why didn't he do it now? Because it was the time. He was surrendered to the Father. He knew this was the Father's will. He could have very easily called and said, I'm just walking away from this crowd, this mob. But he chose not to because he was surrendered just a few moments earlier to the Father's will. And so he submitted himself and allowing them to take him does so freely. So they seize him. He recognizes their hour and their power of darkness was at work. He's been betrayed by his own people who should have recognized him as the Messiah. It's going to be exacerbated a little bit later on in our text. We're going to look at that uh, uh, in a moment. You think, well, one of the twelve abandoned him, but the Bible tells us that all of them ran. Once they realized that there was not going to be any uprising, there was no, not going to be any exercise of, God's, of Jesus' divine power, that there wasn't going to be any miraculous deliverance at this moment, they simply scattered. We find from other Gospels that at least one of them had contact with the high priest's house, household, and was able to make his way there. Peter follows him from a distance, enters the courtyard. In the courtyard, the high, the, the, this location would have, uh, it sounds strange to us because we think, why are they going to someone's house? But the house would have been a place of, of judgment. In fact, they believe they found this house in Jerusalem and were able to walk through there. And, and uh, their basement truly was a dungeon of sorts. And so they would have the place of punishment right there available to them as well. They were, of course, under the authority of the Romans, so they had limited uh, authority of what they could do. Um, But out in the courtyard, Peter finds himself waiting to see what's going to happen. What is going to be the judgment? How is this all going to play out? We've looked at this already when the statement of Jesus to Peter was, you're going to deny me three times before this night's over. And those of you who think that roosters crow in the morning haven't ever had one, (laughs) they crow at night. Don't know why, but at 4 a.m. they crow. And they don't really stop from what I can tell. And so usually I chop their heads off because of that at my house. So we eat them um, when they start doing that kind of stuff. But... uh, He's going to be there, and the rooster's going to crow. He's going to be in that place. You might say, well, he hasn't fully abandoned Christ. I mean, he's at least trying to stay nearby. Isn't this saying something about Peter? Well, it tells us that there's some turmoil going on inside of Peter. There's a struggle now. He wasn't struggling when Christ was struggling. And this, I think, is key. Christ instructed them, pray lest you enter into temptation. We learned that last week and the week before. We studied that. That Christ is the example that we we are confronted with this point of, of decision, of turmoil, where here is something I want and here is something else that I want. I want to please God, but I also want to please my flesh. And now that turmoil naturally develops inside of me. What is the solution? The solution is that we do what Christ says. Pray that we enter into not, not enter into temptation. And Peter slept instead of praying, and now he's ill-prepared. And now the turmoil is there. Very real. As real as what Jesus was enduring a few minutes 
hours earlier in the garden, Peter was now dealing with in the courtyard of the high priest. But unlike Jesus, he wasn't praying. He was ill-prepared for this. And now not just once, but three times. He is to be confronted with an accusation that was dead on. You're one of Jesus's, aren't you? And we identify with Peter to some respects in many ways. Are you one of those guys? Are you one of those people? And if you look in the description of it, um, it's a simple thing. First of all, it's just association. You were with him. This man was also with him is the accusation, verse 56. The servant girl. We're not talking about someone with authority. We're not talking about a high priest. We're not talking about a Sadducee or a Pharisee or a lawyer. We're not talking about anyone. We're talking about a servant girl. Probably one of the lowest servants in the household recognizes him. Says, you were with Jesus, weren't you? One of, you were one of his guys. You see, when we are ill-prepared because we haven't made a commitment really in our heart and we haven't dedicated ourselves to the will of God, a little girl comes up and suddenly we're afraid. A little girl. Aren't you one of those Jesus freaks? Aren't you one of Jesus' men? Don't you follow that guy? The accusation was one of association. Aren't you associated with him somehow? And Peter's statement is astounding. And yet if we recognize the context that he's ill-prepared for this because he slept when he should have been praying, we shouldn't be surprised at all. His statement isn't, I don't follow. I know him, but I don't go around with him. I don't really follow him. No, the statement is, I don't know him. Woman, I don't know him. Another saw him and said, you also are of them. You see, now it's not only association, it's participation. You are of them. You are counted among their number. And his statement is, I am not. I am not. Counted of the number who follow Christ. Whoa. I don't know him. I'm not counted of his number. And finally, I don't even know what you're talking about. He claims absolute ignorance of who Jesus is or anything that Jesus taught or anything of what's going on. Like I just walked into town tonight, fresh from the countryside, which of course didn't happen because. If you arrive for Passover, you arrive at the beginning of the week. I don't know him. I'm not a part of what he's doing or who he is. I don't even know what's going on. Absolute and total denial of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we sit here and we might be a little condemning of Peter this morning. How could he? How could you? When a coworker asks, when a neighbor asks, and we claim ignorance, we just sit there and shrug our shoulders. How could we? You know, we find ourselves in that condition far too often. 
that were unwilling to acknowledge who our Savior is to men. And, and Jesus has some very powerful things to say that are frightening to me, honestly. You deny me before men? What did Jesus say he will do? I'll deny you before my Father. You can't introduce me to men as your Lord and Savior. Don't you expect me to introduce you to my Father as one of His children? God takes it that serious. Now, obviously, we're talking about Peter, and we know that at some point there was a, a place of forgiveness for him, a place of restoration for him, and that's going to occur on the other side of the resurrection. But the statement is still holds true that if we are walking through our life day after day after day, unwilling to acknowledge who we are, what we believe, who is our Lord and Savior, whose will it is that we're supposed to be living, how can we anticipate that Jesus is going to be just thrilled that we arrive in heaven? Let me go introduce you to the Father. Not going to happen. We are fooling only ourselves if we are continually rejecting Jesus Christ before men and somehow expecting that when we get to heaven, He's going to be pleased. Indeed, how will we stand before Him? We cannot. And so we are called today, like Peter, first of all, if you want to avoid this, prepare yourself. Not exactly what you're going to say. What am I going to say if some little girl comes up to me and says, aren't you a Jesus follower? The Bible says, don't worry about exactly the words to say. I don't have any scripts to hand out today. Here's the answer. And there are groups out there that do that, you know. Um, here's a big evangelism program. Here's the exact words for you to say and for you to say. And if they ask you this question, here's your answer, um, which is an exactly opposite of what the Bible tells you to do. Do you recognize that? If you go into my library, you'll see a section on evangelism, and there's programs there that say exactly which, what to say in what order. Let me share with you, I don't teach those here. You will never see me teach them here because they are actually in disobedience to God's command, which is what? Don't worry about what you say. Don't worry about the right words. God will give you the right words. If the Holy Spirit's in you, He'll lead you to say what you need to say and to say it rightly. And, and what needs to be said to that person will be different than perhaps another. We trust in God. So what is this preparation that we're talking about? If it's not preparing the exact words to say, what is it we're supposed to be prepared for? It's preparing our hearts to be bold in standing for who we are or claim to be. Is the preparation that we aren't tempted to deny Christ. It's not about preparation of the exact words and then I'll have confidence um, that's not going to give you confidence, not godly confidence, but it's a matter of a surrender to God that if I've done that in prayer, I've done it vigilantly, that I am prepared to walk the walk, I'm ready to take the stand, and I've surrendered myself to God, and now God's will is my all in all. It is everything I look forward to every day, doing what God wants me to do. Then if I have put myself into that prayerful position as Jesus has done, instead of what Peter's done and slept through the time when I should have been preparing myself, I'm going to be ready. If I've done what Jesus has done, I'll be ready to take that bold stand. And in that condition of surrender to God, God says, I will put 
the words in your mouth that you need to say in that situation. Now, if that doesn't give you confidence, no little script I give you on little note cards is going to help you. God himself will say, I'll tell you what you need to say. It'll just come to your mind. If you surrender yourself fully to me. It's among those good things that our benevolent God does for us. Peter wasn't prepared. And in an unprepared state, he failed. Failed miserably. Ended up rejecting the Lord. And I want to share with you that what happened in the garden is being played out now. You think, well, I'll never deny Christ when the time comes. If you're not in the garden, you will deny Him when the time comes. If you're not prayerfully surrendering yourself to God day by day, when the point of decision comes, you will deny Him. You'll be ill-prepared. You see, Peter's failure here in his denial began in the garden. Where Christ at the beginning said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And at the end said, pray lest you enter into temptation. Rise and pray. Kind of the opposite of what we say. We say kneel and pray. But he said, rise and pray. If you're sleepy, get up and pray. Don't fall asleep praying because you're laying down or on your knees. Sometimes it's best to walk and pray if you're prone to sleeping while you're praying. So this, got that Wednesday night? No chairs. We're going to rise and pray this Wednesday so we have no snoring during this prayer time. If we are prayer time, if our garden time is there, and that is filled with surrender to God's will, we can anticipate avoiding what happened to Peter. That when we are confronted saying, aren't you this? We can say, oh yeah, that's exactly who I am. But the prophecy of the Old Testament anticipates this and says that he'll be abandoned by his own. His own will receive him not. And Christ's rejection was by his own, his inner three even, Peter being the representative. What is the result of being unprepared for temptation and denying Christ? Regret. Verse 62, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Full of regret. Jesus is going to address that when He comes back after the resurrection. We'll study that in weeks to come. Where Christ basically takes particular time with Peter to say, listen, um, I saw you. I heard you. I know you did it. You know I know you did it. <laughs> that contact that between His eyes. And, and if you wonder how that occurred, some people would say that the trial was going on in the courtyard and that is certainly possible but by this point they were already transporting Jesus 
And in that transporting of Christ, he would have crossed his courtyard, perhaps only a couple of feet from Peter. In my mind, I have little pictures, you know that. I have those. And in my mind, Jesus, Peter has his back to it, and Jesus is walking by under arrest, and Peter is saying these words. Crow sounds. Rooster sounds. Crows. There we go. It wasn't a crow. Caw, caw. It was a rooster. And they look at each other, make eye contact. The realization of what I've just done. A few hours ago, I said I would die for you. A few hours ago, I was willing to fight for you. And now, I won't even tell a bunch of servants that I'm with you, know you, a part of you, or know anything about you. We're not told the response of Jesus there at that point. He says nothing, walks by, makes that eye contact. Christ has already expressed Himself earlier in verse 31 through 34. In that sad statement of Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you deny me three times. Deny three times that you know me. And Peter's done that. Christ's rejection continues now by His own people. And let us make it very clear here. We have His inner circle And it's almost from the inside out that he's being rejected. He is rejected vehemently by his inner circle. Peter, the representative of his, of those three, Peter, James, and John. We saw James and John's failure earlier. Peter, James, and John. And then we see Judas as representative of the, of, of that rejection within his twelve, the scattering that's going on. and, And now his own people are dealing with, these are people, um, that have seen him heal, have seen the miracles, have heard Him teach. Some of these may very well have have participated in some of that very activity. And they're going to take Him, mock Him, and beat Him, it says in verse 63. Blaspheming against Him, striking Him, saying, you're blindfolded, you can't see, Who, who hit you? Of course, you and I would just love to sit here and have him just start naming names and just shock them all. He could have. He's done it before. Remember Nathaniel? Oh, I remember you were sitting under that tree. When Nathaniel was alone and knew it. But Jesus knew. He's being rejected by his own people. He's been rejected by his own disciples. Now he's being rejected by his own people. Israelites, the elders of the people, the chief priests, the scribes, they take him into their council, their highest court, if you will, and finally, point blank, say, if you are the Christ, tell us. Christ finally has a response. His statement is, you're not going to believe it. You see, you're not asking the question with an expectation of wanting to change your beliefs. You're asking it with a looking for an opening to justify your own behavior. 
Let's think about that. Let me repeat it. You might have, might have gone right by you, okay? You're asking this question, not wanting to change your beliefs, but looking for an opening to justify yourself. Most people I encounter that ask me religious questions, that is their point. They are in that condition. They are not really looking to change. They they don't really want information to change their beliefs. They're really looking for some way that they can worm their way out of really doing what God tells them to do. They're wanting a way to justify themselves. Whether they ask a question they think you can't answer, which I haven't really found many of those because men aren't smart enough to ask the questions I can't answer. Not because I'm smarter than them, because they're not smarter than God. But because you can see the motives right behind it. How do you know there is a God? Well, I can give you the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the ontological argument. I can give you all these arguments. Um, they're all weak, but they're there. And I can tell you why. I, and uh, my daughter asked me this yesterday because one of the her teammates asked her, how do you know there's a God? What should have I said? Do they really want to change their beliefs? Or do they just want to see if they could stump you? Because they wouldn't ask me that question. I'm there as much as they are. I'm readily available and they know who I am. But they don't ask me that question. And I said, ask them why they're wearing clothes. How does that prove the existence of God? Why are you wearing clothes? Why are all of you wearing clothes? If all you are is an advanced animal, no other animal I know wears clothes. Why are you? Because there's something different about us. And that difference is what God put there. Why do we organize ourselves into weird social groups called churches and other entities? Why do we believe anything? Why don't we just operate on instinct and just eat, drink, and procreate? Because there's a God. And we are made in His image. We are like Him. If you don't believe what happened in the Garden of Eden... You tell me why you're wearing clothes. I know why. I have a Bible and I believe it. But you see, they ask these questions not because they want to know the truth, not because they want to humble themselves and and believe the truth, not because they want to submit themselves to the truth, but because they're trying to find a way to justify themselves. And that's exactly what Jesus is own people group, his countrymen, are asking. They're asking these questions not so they can believe in him, but so they can find an excuse to reject him. Give us a reason not to follow you. And so they ask us weird questions like, you Baptists have all these rules. And I go, really? You know that? What rules do we have? I was in a meeting once. Oh, you Baptists aren't allowed to go to dances. I said, really? You know that? Haven't you read our rule book? The Baptist rule book. Haven't you read it? Really? This is it right here. It's called a Bible. I encourage you all that didn't raise your hand, go home and read this. This is how we live. Okay? This is it. How many of you read the Baptist rule book? 
Oh, a better response. Keep reading, folks. If you, if you can't raise your hand yet, keep reading. This is it. There are no other rules. We want to follow God's will. Now, what are they looking for? An excuse not to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Is it true you guys can't do this and can't do that and have to do this? And I just looked at him and said, yes, and it's also true I can't murder you. Aren't you glad? Because I believe in absolutes. I believe it's absolutely wrong for people to murder other people. Aren't you glad? You don't want to believe in absolutes? You want to follow your own rules? I'm afraid. Because that means you can kill me at the drop of a hat and not feel anything wrong about it. Suddenly it's not so bad to believe in God, is it? (laughs) Or rules. Are you the Son of God? Let's just ask it point blank. And all of them did it. It wasn't just one guy. Uh, and by the way, they weren't a full council. They just had a majority. They had, uh, what's it called, Chris, when you have enough? Quorum. There you go. They had a quorum. Got a quorum. They weren't all there because I know that there was at least one or two that weren't there. The Bible tells that later. But they had a quorum. They all said to him, Are you the Son of God? And Jesus Christ's response is, you said it. You said it. I am. You've rightly said, I am. You've identified me finally. You have spoken something true and I'm going to assent to that. I am the Son of God. That's all they needed. And in their mind, instead of going back into God's Word and saying, well, how are we supposed to recognize the Son of God when He comes? Into their Bibles, which is our Old Testament. Um, how we, it's just two-thirds of our Bible. is their Bible. How are we supposed to recognize the Son of God? And instead of going back in here and looking at all the evidentiary that's there to, to point to the Son of God and considering His claim, they simply start screaming at, out, You're guilty! You're a blasphemer. We don't need anyone else to say anything. We've heard from your own mouth. You see, you've spoken (laughs) something that we don't like. And we refuse to believe. And as soon as you say it, we're going to condemn you. That's how most people ask religious questions. Whether that question is, do you really think God's going to send people to hell? They're trying to find an excuse not to believe your God. They're trying to find that He's evil when He's nothing but benevolent. Do you think God's this? Most questions that I encounter are not honest, I want to discover truth, but rather I'm looking for a way to justify myself. To give me an excuse not to believe. And Jesus recognized it among His people. And let me share with you, if you find yourself and you've been walking through life asking those kind of questions, don't congratulate yourself. You are among this number who reject Christ every day. They knew the right question to ask. They knew enough to ask this question, are you the Son of God? They knew what it meant. They knew how to recognize Him. They knew what God promised to do through His Son. They knew what they were asking. But they weren't asking it because they wanted to believe 
but because they want an excuse to justify themselves. We are looking for an excuse to slaughter you, to reject you, to toss you out. There are a lot of people asking religious questions and think that they are somehow to be looked up to for that. And I'll look up to you as far as I look up to the chief priest that day. You're one who is simply trying to find an excuse not to believe. And so in many ways, our response is almost like that of Christ. Do you really want to know? Or do you just want to try to figure out a way out, an excuse not to believe? Christ's rejection is going to continue in chapter 23, but we find that His most intimate rejection has already occurred. One of his inner three, 